Revelation chapter 19. We began this last week. And we're going to pick up this morning in verse 7 and read down through verse 18. Before we do that, I want to share something with you. Well, let me read the first book verse. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, typically, when we think about weddings, we think about one man and one woman coming together as husband and wife. Uh, I had the opportunity, one of the, one of the nicest, neatest things I ever took part in, in as a pastor was when I was in Uganda last time, I presided over a mass wedding. It wasn't just two people, it was just one couple. There were six couples that were married on that particular day, and I had the privilege of presiding over that ceremony. And let me tell you, it was one of the greatest celebrations I've ever experienced in a Christian church. It was just amazing. To the ladies that were on, on the mission team with me, they had prepared for the whole year for this wedding. And one of the things that they did was they, they went out and they asked, Church people, the ladies in the church, if they had wedding dresses, they would be willing to donate to give to, so they could be utilized by these brides uh, in this wedding. And, and so they, they acquired those, those gowns and they brought them over to Uganda with them. And let me tell you, that was, that was just an unbelievable gift to those brides. You've never seen women smiling like these women were, and part of it was because of these beautiful wedding gowns that they had, understanding that if it were not for that, there, there's not really much they would have been able to do that would have been special as far as their, their wedding wear goes. Six hundred people. No invitations. Not one. In Uganda, everyone's invited to weddings. Whether you know or do not know either of the bridal company. The village poured into the church compound that day. They set up tents so that everyone would be out of the sun. What a delight. What a joy. We've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is by invitation. Some people seem to think that it's open invitation, that anybody and everyone that's ever lived on the face of the earth will be there and is invited to come. But that just is simply not true. That there is something required to be there. That is repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus Christ. 
to be part of the bride, the church of the Lamb of God. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, Do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he sat upon it, uh, who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in white linen, or fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Notice there is a contrasting of two suppers. The marriage supper of the Lamb, and then the one that follows. We're going to pick up at verse 10. That's about how far we got last week. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, I do not, or do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Angels are not to be worshipped. We're assuming that this is an angel. There is no other explanation for it. Uh, that comes to Jesus to uh, to John, and John's reaction to him is to fall down and worship him. 
And I would imagine that there was some degree of fear with John because you'll see that this is a very often a reaction that you find with people who are confronted with the full presence of the glory of God in the form of one of his angels, one of his messengers that he sends. Uh, you find that with Zacharias uh, when the angel came to announce the birth of John to come. You find it with the shepherds when they were confronted with the angel one angel initially, but then a host of angels as they were in the fields with the sheep. The point that is to be made here is this, is that God and God alone is worthy of worship. That even though John was doing it unintentionally, he was ascribing something to this being that he had no ground for, no reason for, no justification for. Now, we understand that the Bible teaches that Jesus, in fact, is God, and we know that for a lot of reasons, some reasons directly and some reasons indirectly. And one of those indirect, indirect things would be this, is that very often when he did a miraculous act or he, uh, or he demonstrated his power in a very profound and magnificent way, that people would fall down and worship him. We're told that the disciples, that night when Jesus came to them as they were out in the boat walking on water, and when he came into the boat, what does it say? It says that they fell down and they worshiped him. And we find the same thing many, many times in the New Testament, which tells us this, if God is the only one that is to be worshipped and Jesus is worshipped and Jesus doesn't rebuke those who worship him, what does that say? It demonstrates that he, in fact, is God and that he is worthy to be worshipped. Verse 11 begins what we've, we've already read about in, in Matthew last week and in Luke this morning. We could go to 1 Thessalonians 4 and read the same sort of thing. And that is what we know is the second coming of Christ. I mean, does anyone doubt? And we may doubt and wonder about some of the things that we've seen here in, in, in this book of Revelation. But when we read verse 11 here, is, or, is there any doubt here that this is a picture of Christ Coming his second time. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Heaven opened up earlier on in the book of Revelation. You remember that, that Jesus had had the door in heaven and opened up? And Jesus had called to John to come up? He went up. Well, the door to heaven is open again, and it must be a very big door because Jesus is coming back. And like we said before, even though he came by himself the first time, all alone, 
in a sense. One man who's also God. When he comes again, he will not be alone. Can we begin to imagine what life for Jesus was really like in this world? The eternal Son of God who had always, of course, he has all the attributes of God. He's infinite. There are no limitations. There's nowhere he's not all the time. He knows it all. He sees it all. He has all power and might. Can we even begin to imagine what it was like for him to experience becoming a man? And to do it willingly even desiringly, all for people like us. There should be a lot of things that amaze all of us. There really should be. But one of the most amazing things is that God loves me so much. He was willing to do so much to have me. He's called faithful and true. Called faithful because he's bringing to fruition everything that he has promised. God always comes through. God has never failed one time ever to do what he's intended to do. He is always successful, he never falls short. He has told the truth. He has never lied. He has never misled. He has never misguided. He has never told half-truths, only whole truths. And we've talked about this a number of times in recent weeks in that he judges in righteousness, in perfect righteousness. His court is the perfect court. His sentence is the perfect sentence. His, his judgment is the perfect judgment. The punishment is always perfectly, absolutely equal to the crime. Never more, never less. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. He has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. If you think about the first vision that John had of Jesus all the way back in Revelation chapter 1, he, he gave this description of Jesus, and it's not very much different than the one that is here. And one of the things that is included in both 
is that his eyes are a flame of fire. They have the ability to penetrate. They see everything. There's nothing hidden from him. Not the first time we've seen beings with diadems. The great red dragon had seven. The beast who came up out of the sea had ten. Jesus has many. I would imagine many more. And there's a huge difference. The others were false crowns based upon false claims. His are real. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Now, why do you think that the devil, that great red dragon, and the beast had diadems? See, a lot of going on in Revelation, you see these pictures that, that really ultimately apply to Jesus, but very often Satan and, and his evil spirits, in particular, or the beast that came up out of the see and the one who came out of the earth they take on things that that want to give people the impression of a likeness to god we talked about you see the the uh, an anti-trinity that is depicted in in the in the red dragon being one person in the beast from the sea another person and the beast from the land another person that it's a mockery of god himself And you see that here is as well. But we need to understand that Jesus' crowns are legitimate. They are real. He truly is the king. He's the king. He's not only the king, he's the king of kings. He's the king above all kings. He has the name written upon him with which no one knows except himself. Now, I would imagine there have been some people over the years, they've tried to figure out everything that Revelation says, and some people have probably concluded at some point or another, they figured out what that name is. I haven't read anybody that has said that, but I would not be surprised because it seems as though some people have the answer to every question anybody has about Revelation. We don't know what that name is. But does that mean there's not anything we can say about that name? I'd say there's something big we can say about that name. We don't know what that name is, but we do know this. It is the name above all other names. It is the greatest name There ever has been. He's clothed with a robe that is dipped in blood. Now when we think about blood in Jesus, very often we jump to the cross. I think we would make a mistake if we did that here. It's very clear whose blood this is. It's not the blood of Jesus. 
This is the blood of his enemies. Those who stand against him. If you read in the next verse, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. If you're familiar with the way things used to be done, that to make the wine, they had to tread the grapes. And we mean literally tread the grapes in a big vat. And you can imagine that the people who did that got grape juice all over their clothing. This is the picture we need to see with Jesus at this point. It's the blood of his enemies at his feet. That covers his robe. His name is called the Word of God. How many times in his gospel does John basically call Jesus the Word of God? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The very first verse in his gospel. Words have to do with speaking and words have to do with hearing. Jesus is the word by speaking. We receive that word by listening, by hearing, by taking it not just into our mind, but also into our heart. As we said before, he is not alone. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, who is this great army? We know that Jesus said to the disciples that he would come again and bring them to himself. We know that there are the spirits of the martyrs that are under the altar in that heavenly throne room and they're crying out continually, when, Lord, when? When will you bring vengeance upon those who did this to us? And that's a paraphrase. Jesus has responded to that. We know this from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, that when Jesus does return, that the souls, the spirits of all of our brothers and sisters who have died in the meantime, their physical bodies died, their spirit hasn't died, their spirit has gone to be with Jesus. And so when Jesus comes back, he's bringing all of them with him. And we may like this, but we, we, there are places in the Bible that don't say this specifically, but very often, theologically, we refer to the church as the church vigilant. The church 
militant. There's a sense in which we are already soldiers in the army of Christ as we live in this world. Messengers. We don't think of ourselves as fighters very often. And I think that's probably because we really don't understand the depth of the depravity that we live among and even what remains within us. We're called to arms. Put on the armor, the full armor of God. They're clothed in fine linen, white, obviously a reference to purity, of holiness, a reflection in a sense of the glory of God. White horses, white horses, so Jesus is on a white horse. Doesn't mean that much to you and I today if... If, if, we, if we were watching a real battle taking place, you know, with all the army tanks and big cannons and all the modernized weapons and things like this, and someone showed up on a white horse at the, at the head of one of the armies, we would think they had lost their mind. But in the days that this book was written, it was the practice of kings, it was the practice of generals to ride these mighty white steeds. It was a symbol of their authority. It was a symbol of their power as they led the charge. I want to remind us this morning of the promise that God made to Israel as he called them into the promised land. It is the Lord your God who goes forth before you. He will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did in Egypt. There is no doubt Jesus is the leader. No one will doubt that for one moment. He will go forth before He will lead the way. And the only thing he demands of us is that we follow. That's not something new that comes at the very end of time. That is something he calls us to do from the time that we enter into his kingdom. The time that we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we repent of our sin, we are called from that point to come. To follow after him. To go wherever he will lead us. Knowing that wherever he leads us, he is there before we get there. We are only following him. But it is one of our greatest callings, and that is to follow. To follow wherever he will lead. 
From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Now, the interesting thing about this is this particular kind of sword was a long sword, which was not the type of sword that was common in the days of Jesus. The Romans used the gladius, which was just a short sword. The Greeks had a short sword that they used. So long swords were not common in the world in this area during the era all of this was going on. They, they used short swords. They didn't use these long swords. But in the Greek, it is very definitely a long, broad, heavy sword. It's also part of the picture of the vision that John had in Revelation 1.16. This sharp sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Now, very often, people want to take everything that Revelation says literally. And we have ground here to say... We're not talking about a literal sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Because we know that in the Bible, the Bible is often referred to the word of God as the sword. Matter of fact, in Paul's Rendition of putting on the whole armor of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So he's going to smite the nations not with a physical sword, but with his word, his truth. He will rule over them with an iron rod. That picture is painted a number of times in the Old Testament. And the thing to think about here is a royal scepter made of iron. In those days, iron was the strongest metal known to man. It treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. We've already seen this already one time in Revelation. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. He has no king over him. He has no Lord over him. He is the end of the road. No one higher. Never has been. Never will be. So we said before that we, we began this morning considering the marriage supper of the Lamb, but there's another supper that takes place here that is in contrast to that that we find here in 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble, for what? For the great supper of God. It's amazing how you see all these contrasts and 
in the book of Revelation. The contrast between the city of God and the, and the, and the city of man. The contrast between Jesus and a number of different places and, and the evil one. The contrast of the world and the world of sinners. Obviously, these are carrion birds. Birds that eat flesh, vultures. They gather. To eat the flesh of those kings. Remember the kings that had allied themselves to the harlot, to the seductress. They were so deeply grieved when Babylon the Great fell. They watched at a distance. They couldn't believe that it happened. They couldn't believe how rapidly it how rapidly it happened when it did happen. Those kings are there. The commanders are there. The mighty men are there. Even the horses. And even the flesh of all men. See, there's another thing going on here in this whole chapter, and that is this battle of Armageddon. It's not the thing that's in the forefront. It's not what's most obvious to us. And we've talked about it over the last several chapters, been in judgment, 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 judgment. But those things were only partial. They were not complete. What we're talking about here, guys and gals, is coming to the end where God's full and final judgment And we're not to the end of the book just yet. Talking about Armageddon. That final battle. Where did all these bodies come from? From that battle. That battle of Armageddon. It was mentioned all the way back in chapter 16, verse 6. So do you understand this? That if you believe that Revelation is just this unfolding from one end to the other of this event after that event after that event and so on and so on and so on, you don't really understand the arrangement of it. And that is this, is this battle has appeared a number of times in Revelation already. It's not one single vision, it is a series of seven. Can you get it? Seven. That's an interesting number in the book of Revelation. Seven different visions. They cover much of the same things over and over and over again in just different ways and emphasize this particular aspects to different levels and degrees in different places. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet. The beast being the one who came up out of the sea, and the false prophet being the beast who came up out out of the land.
These were thrown into the lake of fire. Another name for hell. Jesus talks about fiery hell. They're the first of many. If you look into the next chapter, we'll find out they're not going to be alone. Verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Verse 14 and 15, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So all of those through all of history who have denied Christ his rightful place. They have acknowledged him, have not acknowledged him to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They will be judged. And we'll talk more about this next week. The eternal judgment. There is no end to it. I've used this before, and you've probably heard it so many times that you don't want to hear it anymore. And the first time you heard it, you probably cringed. Now remember the story I've told you about John Gerstner. I had him for a class. He was R.C. Sproul's mentor. and You know, a very nice guy once you got to know him. And Peggy and Bruce know, knew him some, to some degree. He's dead now. Uh, but he said this to us the first night, the first, very first theolog- uh, class I ever had in theology, the very first night he said to this, he said to us that when we are in glory, that we will rejoice to see our unbelieving mother cast into hell for all of eternity. Now, he did that for effect. Because, I mean, that affects you in a way that probably nothing else he said that. We, if I don't remember anything, the whole class, you know it's going to be that one thing. And when you heard me say it, it made you cringe. I saw the look on your face. Exactly the way I responded to it. But what he's trying to demonstrate there is this, is the difference between where we are now and where we will be when we're glorified. When we are completely made new in Christ Jesus to the fullest extent. That we will have such a passion 
in such a love and a desire for the fullness of the glory of God that we will see things from an entirely different perspective, no longer clouded by the vestige of sin that remains in us. That's what causes us to cringe. And that's what makes us want to scream out to God, that's not right, that's not good, that can't be. You're righteous and you're holy and, 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 and you're full of glory, etc., etc., etc. You know what? That's because we don't understand what all of those things involve. We don't understand how glorious God really is. We don't understand how dirty and rotten and nasty and ugly sin really is. We don't know how intolerable it is for God to look upon it. It should amaze us that God didn't snuff us out in the Garden of Eden. He abhors sin. He hates sin more than you've ever hated anything in your whole lifetime. By magnitudes. And I tell you what he hates, maybe most of all. is to watch his people continue to wallow in it and not think much of it. You see your Lord, you see your King. If those things are true, there is not one thing he can ask of you that he doesn't have full right and authority to ask of you. Any time, any day, any moment. When we talk about things like this, we need some assurance. And Jesus is that assurance. He is the assurance that God loves you with an unbelievable love that is unbounded, is unlimited. He was willing to do everything necessary to have you. He has you. He will not let go of you. He loves you with a love that we can't, again, we can't begin to imagine the greatness of his love. We've only tasted just a little inkling of it. I wonder if there are any people in this room that never in their whole life as a believer have shared the gospel with anybody else. Seriously. 
Have you ever in your whole lifetime told anybody about Jesus? I hope not. I'm not sure we have anybody in our congregation that has a gift of evangelism. But that doesn't mean that we're not all called to be evangelists. Every one of us. Be nice on that day if there were people who came up to you and said things like, you know what, I'm here because you told me. Because you thought enough of me, you loved me enough to tell me the gospel of Jesus Christ. 